Hey everybody, this is Marina, your podcast host at Unbossed. Here we go. At Unbossed, I interview amazing women in Chicago. There's so much woman power in this city that I want to provide these women a platform to tell their story. Please connect with us and please consider supporting by sharing, liking, commenting the podcast. Tell all your Netflix friends and family about it. Submit a recommendation for our guest. Subscribe on your favorite podcast app and donate by clicking on the anchor link and help me continue to make great episodes. I hope you enjoy and welcome to the show. Phyllis Gling is the executive director of the Irving Harris Foundation. In her over two decades with the foundation, she has led, developed, and implemented its grant-making and field leadership work in the areas of early childhood development and child and family welfare, reproductive health and justice, Jewish values, and social justice. Phyllis works closely with the foundation's partners in the nonprofit advocacy, philanthropy, and government communities, to leverage shared investment and maximize the impact of foundation grants in Illinois and across the country. She leads the foundation's partnerships with national replication and public policy efforts such as BUILD, the Early Learning Challenge Collaborative, First Five Years Fund, and the Alliance of Early Success, amongst many others. Phyllis holds many leadership roles in the public and philanthropic sectors, including serving as co-chair of the Governor's Early Learning Council, the Illinois Commission on Equitable Funding for Early Childhood Education and Care, the Advisory Board on the National Center of Excellence in Infant and Early Childhood Mental Health Consultation, the Membership Committee of the Early Childhood Funders Collaborative, and co-chairs Build's Advisory Board. Past leadership includes serving on the State Illinois Department of Human Services Child Care Advisory Council for 20 years, including twice chairing strategic planning task forces for the department, Health Connects One National Dual Leadership Institute, and the Chicago Children's Museum's Early Childhood Advisory Board. She was a co-founder and developer of the Build Initiative, the first five years fund, the Alliance of Early Success, and Illinois Barber's Women's Leadership Fellowship. Mrs. Glenk served on the 2008 Health and Human Services Transition Team for the Obama Administration. She's also served on the Health Transition Team for the Runner Administration, the Pritzker Education Transition Team, and the Lightful Education Transition Team. Prior to joining the Irvin Harris Foundations, Ms. Glenk worked for the Chicago Community Trust, focusing on grant-making and program development in the areas of education and women's and girls' issues. Mrs. Gling started her career in philanthropy at the University of Chicago, where she worked for seven years in the Central Development Office as a mayor's gift officer raising funds for the successful $650 million capital campaign. Welcome, Phyllis. Right. I've never been interviewed for a podcast, Marina. Oh, my God. This is perfect. Hey, everybody. This is your host, uh, Marina Malaguri at Embossed. Today, my guest is Phyllis Glink. She is the executive director at the Irving Harris Foundation. Welcome to my podcast. Thanks, Marina. I'm so grateful to be here. Thank you. And um, I was telling you, it's 
crazy nowadays because it's end of the year and there's a lot going on. I can't wait to talk to you about what's happening with the foundation. I'm sure you also have a lot going on right now. Um, but I want to start with giving our audience a context about you and uh, where did you grow up? Are you from Chicago originally? I am from Chicago. I grew up in the Lakeview neighborhood nice. in the city. And I've lived in and around Chicago most of my life with a brief stint in, well, Ann Arbor for college and um, New York briefly out of college, but nice. not, for, so, not for long. <laughs> Michigan and New York. That's awesome. How, um, what was like growing up in Chicago? Did you, um, like, especially in Lakeview and then going to college here? So I loved growing up in the city. Um, I don't know. I've been reflecting on that lately as um, we've been seeing what's been going on in various neighborhoods around Chicago. And, um, you know, I grew up at a time where it just felt like there was a lot of freedom to explore. And um, I lived pretty close to Lincoln Park and the lake. And um, I grew up starting at age nine, taking public transportation to school and um, by taking my bike out into Lincoln Park and biking along the lake. So one of my favorite things to do still to this day is is biking all the length of the lake all the way yeah. to Hyde Park and back and walking all the time. And yeah. so for me, growing up in the city, we lived in, um, you know, an, a, a really interesting neighborhood. I, yeah. you know, hasn't changed actually much since I was growing up. And, um, you know, I loved it. It was just very vibrant and I have lots of memories of just, you know, hanging out and, you know, playing football in the park or, yeah. you know, whatever it might be. So Chicago was a great place to look up. And I, you said, you know, like you said, it was a great place to, to grow up. And you said there has been conversation obviously about, and I'm thinking about the, um, um, the, I think the level of crimes that have been increasing lately. Is that correct? So tell me about that conversation that has been happening and, and the reflection yeah, I mean, behind I, I don't live in the city right now, so it's not for me to say. Um, yeah. I have always felt like Chicago is such an accessible place. And, you know, I want, you know, want to believe that if I had raised my kids in the city, I would have felt the same way of go explore. The city is yours mm -hmm. to understand. And, this Chicago is so great because it has so many great neighborhoods and all kinds of different, you know, ethnic groups. And it's just very um, vibrant. But I think, you know, what has at least the perception among my co my friends who have kids in the city is they don't feel that, that it is as open and free as it once was. And I don't know if that's um, because we now have more access to social media and mm. Um, different kinds of ways of reporting things that may have always been happening that are now happening, but you know about them in real time, or if there has been a change. And, you know, for me and the work that I do at the foundation, which is, you know, really striving, we focus particularly on early childhood, but it's about how can we make the city work for all of its citizens? It hasn't been safe for many people for many years, right? The kind of violence that may be bleeding into parts of the city that have never had that kind of um, level of violence has been happening in many communities for a very long time. Yeah. So maybe the silver lining of all of this is that there'll be a heightened awareness and attention paid to actually trying to yeah. solve some of the challenges. You know, we're big advocates that by investing in early childhood and creating safe and nurturing spaces for all children that will start to, um, you know, 
combat the toxic stress that many communities and families have been experiencing. And so, you know, I I don't know, it's complex. So those are the nature of the conversation. You know, what's behind this feeling of unsafety? Is it really, um, is it perception? Is it reality? Is it, you know, is it, I think the question is a new or is it old too, right? Like you said, it's like, Maybe it's always been there. We just didn't know where we're not as aware as about it as before. I think it's a both and. Yeah. And, yeah. and, you know, what's at the heart of it and why and what do we should we be doing about it collectively and what's our responsibility to each other and to our community and, and I mean community collectively, you know, like we're all in community. Yeah. What's our responsibility Yeah, um, to show up for each other and to figure that out. So I, I don't know. Those are the nature of the conversations I'm having mm-hmm. and whether or not, you know, I also think, you know, during COVID, um, if you lived near the lake in the park, you still had access to outdoor space, but I don't think everybody felt that way always in their community. And so, you know, I think that there's just a whole different kind of conversation that people are having. Yeah, absolutely. I do like the conversations though. They are, as you mentioned, at least bringing out awareness to you know having those discussions and doing something about it versus keep keeping them tucked away in one neighborhood or in one specific group of people right right yeah and we haven't been having that conversation so however that's getting forced you know i think the ultimate goal will be to have that conversation in a meaningful way yeah and really start to think about what some of the solutions may be yeah i love that um so Tell me like a little, give me like a little bit of color of who was Phyllis in the city at nine years old, going oh around. <laughs> like, do you have a story about like, what was it like even like first, the, your first time taking a train? How old were you? And, and, you know, I grew up on the bus line, so I did not oh, grow okay. up on the, you know, on the train line. It was many years actually till I was taking the, the L to and from work or whatever, because my world was slightly yeah. more East than that. But um, you know, I grew up on the, the 22 and the 36 bus on Clark which, and Broadway, which were super interesting for a little kid because they're full of really interesting characters. And yeah. I also grew up taking like, um, you know, the 156 and the 151 um, to and from school or downtown to Michigan Avenue or, you know, stuff like that. You know, I um, I'm an identical twin. So I kind oh. of went through the world when I was younger with my twin sister. And nice. um, we also grew up at a time. Like last winter, I think it was last winter, we had tons of snow. But that was very typical when I was growing up, to have that kind of snow. And we would go into um, Lincoln Park and build our igloos and our, you know, we would sled down the hill at Diversity in Lincoln Park and, you know, go ice skating on a lagoon. And, you know, we just, we took advantage, really, of all that the city and I think we kind of felt invincible you know we would (laughs) go around in our little gang of nine-year-olds you know to and from school we'd meet up with our friends and it was really did feel like um you know just like a neighborhood that's awesome yeah that's really cool so how was it like growing up with an identical twin as well is it true that you have uh specific powers Well, you know, we used to try to pretend to be the Wonder Twins. We have an older sister, so she was really um, also helpful and instrumental in <laughs> showing us the way. But, um, you know, I think when you have a twin, you you kind of know you always have somebody yeah. who's got your back. Yeah. You know, it's sort of, a, um, at least for us, we're still very close and close with both of my sisters. But, you know, growing up as an identical twin, you know, people 
back then, you know, I still think there's there's a lot more twins today because of oh, fertility. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But there's not a, any more, in de, you know, identical twins. They're still the mm. same limited because that's, you know, just a genetic. Yeah. So it was for a little bit of a oddity and, mm. you know, how that got a lot of attention. How many times have you pretended to be each other? We used to do that. When we were younger, and then when we went, we went to separate school colleges. So for the first time ever, nobody knew we were identical twins. Oh yeah! So that was a lot of fun when she would come visit me. I went to University of Michigan in Ann Arbor. It's huge, and you know, people would stop and engage her in long conversations when she wasn't with me, and she didn't know how to say "I'm not Phyllis," you know. <laughs> so we had a lot of fun with it. But um, she she lives in New York now, so we we don't get to play the twin game quite as often. No, I totally wanted a twin so I could just send her to my work. Exactly. But she's a lawyer, so I can't keep up with her. She's a lawyer. She does oh my God. Labor, la labor litigation. Yeah, know, just for pre pretend for a week. I'll take a, a three-week vacation. One week, you know, you pretend to go in. The two weeks are vacation. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna sh I'll shoot that idea to her and see if it flies. <laughs> oh, that would be awesome. Um, okay, so... Um, Chicago was your your like almost as in like yours to explore and that's um, how I felt. Yeah, that's that's amazing. And so, how did you choose to go to Michigan for school? You know, it's a funny story. My sister, my older sister, is two years older. Yeah, and we were on the college visiting, you know, circuit with her and my. You know, we were in the car and um, doing lots of trips all over. And we pulled into Ann Arbor for her college visiting trip. It oh, was okay. pouring rain. It was cold. It was a terrible day. Mm. And I took one step on that campus, and I don't know, it just spoke to me or something. It was like, yes, okay. this is where I want to go. It was weird because, you know, I hadn't really, it was just, there was something about it. I'd gone to a very small school in the city. I went to Latin school growing up, so it was a small private school. I had 60 kids in my grade. And I think I was just ready for something big. Sure. Yeah. And um, Ann Arbor is a great town. And Michigan, it just spoke to me. So when I got to my senior year, they had at the time, a, I have a senior in high school now. So I'm, I'm wishing for those days where they had a um, rolling admissions process. And as soon as you applied, they would review you and tell you if you were in or out. It was very simple oh, back yeah. then. I, I, Not I today. <laughs> today is November 1st, and my senior just applied to her first round of schools, and yes. it's not as easy. But um, I was into, I got in in October yeah. in Michigan, and I never looked back. That was the only place I applied, and um, off and I went, and I had a great time. That's awesome. And so what did you study again when you were in Michigan? I was an English major, and then I studied... Um, it's obscure, but Russian Eastern European studies. And that's the, it's obscure. Because I was in, I think Michigan for me, um, had always been sort of, my parents had all, we always volunteered. We always sort of participated in our community. But it was really, I think, in Ann Arbor where I sort of learned how to be an activist and mm -hmm. how to like get involved in an issue. And I got involved, I'm Jewish, and I got involved with a, student group called Student Struggle for Soviet Jewry. At the time, Soviet Jews were not allowed to leave the um, Soviet Union, and they were persecuted and oppressed. And so we were part of a national movement of, um, international movement, really, to advocate for their rights to be able to leave the Soviet Union. Mm -hmm. And so I ended up getting involved with that group and doing things like, you know, chaining myself to the grad school steps and 
all night candlelight vigils where you would read name after name of the Soviet Jews who were being uh, kept in their country. And um, it was a good time. I like to say I had good timing because while I was in, in I was ended up being president of that student group, um, the, the Jews were actually let out of the Soviet yes. Union and yeah. started to immigrate to all over, you know, the all over the world. So yeah. um, we did a big march in Washington. So it was it was sort of like my awakening in that regard. Yeah, 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 totally. I giggle there because uh, the chaining to the the campus statue is very iconic of the American activism and the sentiment. Um, a very, very important issue. And I'm so glad you got involved and you felt so pressed about it. Um, how did your interest in in children and uh, got like evolved from yeah. this? Because I know you're you're very into childhood, right? And childhood yes. education and active activism around generally like advocating for better childhood bringing. How did that happen? You know, I do a lot of mentoring over the years of of people coming into the field, and I had to reflect like, how is it that I ended up you know, so passionate about yeah. this. And, you know, when I, again, I'll go back to my Judaism, I was bat mitzvahed at, at 12 and a half. And mm. I remember the rabbi saying, what do you want to be when you grow up? Mm. And I wanted to be a pediatrician. Yeah. And that was because, you know, I loved children and I wanted to help people. Mm. And then, of course, I realized, you know, I had no talent for it. I wasn't, blood and illness were not sort of like motivators for me. And I went off and did all these other things. But when I came back after college and after my first stint in working, and I came back and I started to think about where I wanted to sort of put my energy and my mark, I ended up focusing on early childhood and poverty mm-hmm. and thinking about um, why didn't the city and work for all of its children and what needed to change. And then I went through a period of networking and trying to understand like, how would I do that work? And I discovered the not-for-profit sector, which, you know, I'm just turned 55. So like back in the day, you know, you didn't go get recruited into the nonprofit sector. It wasn't sort of as, as robust as it is today. And, um, and so I started my journey and I start, I, I found out about foundations. I was 23 And I was basically told, you're never going to get a job at a foundation. And I I went out and explored. And I ended up working for the University of Chicago for seven years doing fundraising. And I loved it. Um, But it was then that I discovered the Harris School of Public Policy Studies. And I went and um, went back as a graduate student, you know, while working and, um, and ended up focusing on child and family policy and early childhood. And it was there that I sort of found my real passion. And um, I had been volunteering for years when I got out of college for like the Jewish Children's Bureau and doing like both direct service volunteering and raising money. So I'd already been in that sort of child and family space, but it was graduate school where I sort of honed all those um, skills and also got to meet Irving Harris through that because I went to the Harris School and the dean introduced us. Um, at At the time, I had been an intern for a year at the Chicago Community Trust. And I've been working on women and girls issues and education issues. I met some of my early mentors there, which was, I still consider them mentors and, um, and they were leaders and they, you know, helped guide me through my career. And, um, and I got hired by Irving when I finished graduate school. So I had worked for many years before graduate school and then went to work for the foundation. Love it. 
Um, a few interesting questions. You're like, you're 23 and you're trying to like figure out your way in the world at this point. Um, how, like, you know, like as we encounter, as people are, are, hear this and they have questions about what their passion allow, aligns to the work and vice versa, you know, like what was your thought, maybe even looking back or thinking about that moment for you on how to make those two things match, right? Because there's a lot of people that work and their passions are not completely aligned yet. And so I just, I just would love to hear your perspective. I mean, I think a lot of people work and their passions are not aligned. And I've been, I think I'm so fortunate, right? That I, because, you know, as I say, even in this job, yeah. it's still called work because it's hard. And some yeah. days are really good and some days are not. But I know at the end of the day that what I'm spending my time doing is something that I am passionate about and I'm very mission driven and I'm very fortunate. I think what I, I try to tell people is to really explore what makes them tick. If, and it doesn't have to be um, something that's around, you know, social justice. Or it can be, I really want to understand how technology can help people access important yeah. information. And, you know, there's, you know, I care a lot about making systems work better for people. And that may look like working in a big corporation or whatever it may be. But I try to help, help people who I mentor identify what, keeps them up at night and what do they think about and what are they excited about because you spend a lot of time working and you know better to be doing something that brings you some kind of meaning and it doesn't have to be the meaning that I have mm -hmm. so for me it was really um you know I identified foundations and I said yes that's what I wanted to do and then literally I started networking and I tell people you know networking is super important even if you're not looking for a job making relationships like our work is so relationship based Yes. And I feel like, you know, making relationships, knowing how to build them, foster them. Um, that's ultimately how I got into this position. But it was nine years after yeah. I started looking. It took me nine wow. years to get a job in a foundation. And in the yeah. interim, I found a role that was meaningful to me and gave me good skills, which was raising money for University of Chicago. At the end of the day, after seven or eight years, I thought, well... I could do this the rest of my life, but I won't continue to be challenging. And it's not, I'm not directly meeting the needs of the people that I most want to serve. Yeah. So with the University of Chicago, they have a lot of very um, high percentage of first time college goers, you know, yes. it was good work, but it wasn't ultimately my, my passion work, right? What was going to yeah. keep me going. So that's when I discovered um, the Harris School. I actually took a class on poverty with Susan Mayer and I thought, yeah, this is, I want to do more this kind of work. This, yeah. And so I went back and, you know, didn't know where it was going to take me, but mm -hmm. um, ended up, but I kept thinking um, about philanthropy and what the power that it could have if done well yeah. to bring resources back into communities yeah. that so need them and to work in collaboration and partnership um, yeah. with our public partners, with our um, not pro not for profit partners and community partners. Love that. And so, so almost yeah, it's almost as if I'm hearing like you have to do a lot of what sometimes you don't like or don't fully like in order to figure out kind of like what you like, but know that you need to pivot and continue to pivot until you find that thing that aligns. Right. And and also recognize that like if there's no linear pathway all the time yeah. to your role, 
And being, I think we are raised to feel like if we leave something, it's quitting. You know, my first job was in retail. I went, I went into Macy's executive training program <laughs> in New Jersey. And, it, you know, I'm not I, a quitter. I so, feel yeah, so it took like a year for me to feel like, okay, I don't really don't like this, right? I this really isn't, don't. I don't want to do this, right? But can I quit? can I quit? Like, is this, you know, I think we don't give ourselves permission. And I think, you know, you have to be able to give yourself permission to say, well, what can I take from this? Bring it to my next role, but this isn't necessarily the role for me. Yeah. Love that. Love that. Um, The other thing that I heard is seven years of um, raising uh, money or raising funds for university of Chicago. Right. Um, And I'm so interested into the art of 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 raising money in general because it's first of all there's a million of books that have been written about this <laughs> um which i've read a handful of because you know it's part of like who i am i want to know about some of these things and so i would love to hear about your style what is your formula of success, quote unquote? And and I say it in a way is like most people may feel weird about asking for money for this cause or this cause, but we all have a cause that we want to raise money for. Whether you're selling a business, sure, right? Whether you know, whether you're raising money for, uh, or your daughter is raising money for their their field trip, right? But, you know, whether you're raising selling Girl Scout cookies, <laughs> you know, it could be anything. Or you're, you're, yeah, and you've been doing this for so long. I would love to hear what are your, your lessons about raising money. Um, you know, and we can apply it to both spectrums. It's like, what do you do with sl- smaller lo- sums of money sure. or like larger strategies, right? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think really at the heart of everything we do, and now I'm fortunate that I don't have to raise the money. We get to give it away. But I raised money for many years. And in some ways, we're trying to leverage money now, right? So like, we use our private money to leverage public investments, but and that has a different art and strategy. But at the end Wait, of the we'll day, that. yeah. that's fine. The end of the day, I think at the heart of all of it is two things: having trying to be psychologically minded, right? You have to be an active listener to understand when you're trying to raise money from somebody. What do they care about? What brought them joy when they were at the University of Chicago or when they think about supporting XYZ organization or entity? What, because get, and then how do you form a real authentic relationship with them? You know, I think for us right now in our work, whether you're raising money or giving it, relationships are central to building a, t- a core co- collaborative process where you're mm-hmm. doing that work. So for us at the university, when I was at the University of Chicago, it was really about, I was working with alumni, it was about making a connection with them that was meaningful, listening carefully to what it was that motivated them, and then figuring out how to turn that into a donation or a contribution to something that would in turn bring them joy and connect them to that uh, part of themselves that, they were trying to express through their giving. So that could be scholarship support. It could be building a building because some people want that. I didn't get to have a, an athletic center when I was at school. And that would have made me feel X, Y, Z. Or um, for Irving Harris, when he was giving to the Harris School, it was, 
I think the world has plenty of business people who have MBAs, but we're looking to put out into the universe people who bring sort of that double interest in both business and strategy and social justice and the common good. Mm -hmm. And so for him, it was training leaders who could go out in work in spaces to bring that orientation and perspective to bear and try to make be change agents. Right. Yeah. So for him, it was about creating a, a pipeline of leaders mm. who could go out and do that work, whether it's in the climate area or children and families mm. or whatever it may be. Yeah. And so, you know, I think finding what makes what's important to somebody and that's about relationships. Yeah. You know. Okay. So a few things are how do you teach your your kids? I don't know if you have daughters or something. I have two daughters. Two daughters. I'm using, I have three daughters. So I'm oh, going nice. to teach them this lesson. How do you teach your kids? They're, they're going out and raising money to sell their, to, I don't know, to go to a field trip. How do you teach them like one-on-one? -on -one, this is how you do it. Yeah, well, it's still teaching. You know, I think the first, one of the first words I tried to teach them was advocate. advocate. I particularly think that's important for girls. Okay know how to advocate for themselves and what they're thinking nice. and feeling whether that's in the classroom or it's, it's trying to get somebody to donate to something that they care about yeah. you know like finding their voice and finding some you know a way of helping people connect to what is yeah. meaningful to them so you know it's hard for younger my kids now are 17 and 16 so they're getting a little bit better at it um being able to say hey i'm doing this and and this is why it's important to me and i'd like to know mm. if you'd be willing to donate to it. But I also think it's equally important for them to be able to talk to a teacher or any adult and say, I don't agree with your point of view. And here's mm -hmm. my point of view, and do it in a way that invites conversation and invites, you know, collaboration instead of um, shuts that down, right. Mm -hmm. So I think it's sort of a, a skill. So I guess for, for raising money, it's about helping my kids build articulate why they care about it, mm -hmm. why it's important to them. So that they can help other people understand it, right? I like and it. So, yeah. yeah, I guess that's what I'd say. I love, and then the part about relationship is like um, I have this um, assumption, notion, preconceived notion that building relationships takes a lot of effort and time. And um, and and you know, for some reason, when when I think about um, uh, fundraising, I think about it's a limited period of time. Sometimes, you know, like um, you go through some type of temporary spurs that you have to fulfill a certain amount of, of, of goal or money, right? How do you um, balance these two components, right? Like the time limit and then the part where you have to create a relationship that may take a lot of, and please correct me if I'm wrong. If it doesn't take a lot of time, please let me know. <laughs> How do you do it? <laughs> but yeah, I would love to talk about that, the tension between those two. I mean, yes. I mean, it's been a while since I've had to raise yeah. money like that. But I, what I will say is um, how one, you know, today with Facebook, and all, you could raise money every day for something, mm -hmm. right? And I have a hard time connecting to those kinds of campaigns, right? Because mm -hmm. I'm like, I'm glad that's your birthday and I care about you. And if you care about that, I would give. But I think what really um, helps people is, is just the personal connection with you and then with the organization or cause that you're trying to mm. champion. And so I think that, um, you know, making that personal connection, it could take a long time, but it could also 
you know, take some really good strategic thinking about how one makes it more real and more personal. Got it. And so I think that for me, that that resonates more actively and more clearly, like I want to know from somebody. So I always think personal connection matters. And we kind of seem to move away from that. You know, I, I, I joke that my kids don't even think the phone is like something you actually talk into sometimes. You know, like no one communicates that way. We just, they just text. You'd be sitting next to each other and texting. I'm like, no, 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 talk to each other. I think we're losing the art of conversation. And that shows up later in life, you know, in the workplace, yeah. you know, how people Everyone. know. I mean, I was an English major. So being able to communicate in writing is yeah. super important. And I think it's a, a, a <laughs> skill that we're losing <laughs> in our... Are you, are you the mom that corrects their text and you're like, well, this is I'm, how you... <laughs> I don't, we've gone down that path, but I choose to try to not to do that. But, um, but you know, I think it's just important. And I think we've, we've sort of lost that skill. Yeah. And I think, you know, it's been really interesting during COVID to figure out, like, you know, I think for us as an organization, we have 15 members and five new people who started during COVID and mm. we've barely gotten to actually know them that we're missing to some degree that human connectivity, that mm. extra stuff you get when you're talking to somebody that is yeah. nonverbal that you don't pick up all the time after days and days and days of zoom. And I think, you know, figuring out how to find the right balance so that we can come back together and remember, you know, why we all are working for the same thing. And, yeah. you know, so finding the way to use technology to help support that because we never had zoom before COVID. So it's a wonderful addition. And then also finding the right balance of how one keeps the sort of connectivity mm -hmm. and, you know, personal relationships that yeah. you get from knowing somebody over time and building that yeah. kind of trust and rapport. Awesome. Thank you. Thank mm -hmm. you for that. Mm -hmm. And you are now, so just quick switch into the other part of, of money, I guess, which is like, you're now giving, you said you're giving away money. Yes. Other side, right? You're yeah, right. other side. Asking for money. And then now you're giving away money. Yep. And you said something interesting, and um, please repeat it for me. But you said uh, now you you know you use private money to leverage public investment. Yes. Um, what does that mean? So there will there's never going to be enough philanthropy in the world, no matter how many billionaires give Wait, away money. Why, why is that? Because there's public money is so Irving Harris, who is my boss and yeah. my mentor. He used to start some lectures by saying, who knows who Willie Sutton is? And nobody would raise their hand because yeah, Willie knows. Sutton was a bank robber. And so he would say, why did really Willie Sutton rob the banks? He was Robin Hood. Because that's where the money was. Yeah. The same thing with public-private partnerships. So the money is really our, the big money to solve some of these big, complex issues is public money how we choose to invest it, the choices we make as a society. We're having that discussion right now with the Build Back Better. Do we invest in, in paid leave or not? Do yeah. we invest in childcare and preschool or not? Or not, yeah. And we have enough money because we spend it elsewhere, but we're ch making choices every day with the way we use our public dollars. Are we going to yeah. put it into um, farm subsidies or are we going to put it into SNAP? Yeah. I mean, you know, we're making choices all the time. And yeah. we're, we're thinking about our world as a zero-sum game. They win, we lose. And it doesn't need to be that way because there's mm -hmm. enough money. The issue is how do we help um, change the way we talk about why we need to invest and why we as a country 
need to create, you know, align our funding to a different set of values. And so for us at the foundation, we have always um, invested not in, in so much direct service, but in more upstream strategies that are designed to leverage the way public systems and public money is invested. Okay. So instead of changing, investing in a childcare center, we want to change childcare policy so yes. that when they make a decision, it affects all the kids in childcare, not just the ones in that childcare center. Yes. Right. Okay. And so those are more sort of upstream strategies. Okay. And so for us, we can't do that with private philanthropy alone. We need to figure out how we co collaborate and partner with our mm -hmm. public sector partners so that we're changing the policies, the systems, the structures that support children and families. Mm -hmm. Because so they're they are the ones in the system. And they have the money. Right, our public dollars are much greater than the private philanthropy dollars that get okay. invested. And so, okay. like you could put, if we took all the private philanthropy dollars alone and just put it in child and family, we would make some dent. But we wouldn't. It's it's nothing compared to the amount of money. I mean, we're talking about another four hundred billion dollars in the Build Back Better campaign potentially for childcare and preschool. No, I mean, we give away eight million dollars a year. You know, Got it's it. not. And so if we can use our $8 million to leverage yeah. that $400 billion yeah. and then some, you know, our Illinois system, right now we invest $1.8 in early childhood. Yeah. To do the system well, we need $12 billion yeah. a year. So we need to figure out how are we going to work with our public sector partners so that we continuously get more and more mm -hmm. public investment in. And then the mm -hmm. private money can be for things like R&D, you know, mm -hmm. like, um, you know, bringing, convening people together to think about best practices, ensuring there's a racial equity lens that's brought to the work mm -hmm. that we're doing, making sure the state cares about racial equity and centering mm -hmm. that so that when they do the work, it's being held, they're being yeah. held accountable. Yeah. So for us, and um, the way the foundation's always worked is sort of in collaboration and partnership with our mm -hmm. public sector partners. Got it. So that's super interesting to me because... Sometimes we think as nonprofits as, and there are definitely a lot of nonprofits that are on the ground, right? They're like yes. feeding the homeless, they're helping, you know, they're like uh, uh, housing the homeless, feeding, you know, people who need food or, you know, helping people in need on the ground. And the way your foundation takes this a different approach or, you know, not better or worse, just different approach is thinking about the system. And leveraging, like you said, like using the private investment to changing system in partnership with public money and public uh, public organizations or the you know the government specifically. Yes, and and yeah. what hasn't always happened well, and mm -hmm. you know I think philanthropy is is shifting as is government, which is how does one actually listen to and learn from the stakeholders who are on the ground who are experiencing how childcare mm -hmm. is operating day to day yep. to the parents who are struggling to find access to something that will support their family's needs yep. and have that inform the system's decisions and the policy decisions that get made. Right. So yep. the foundation is in, in the in intermediary kind of yep. between the stakeholders. Well, yep. one of the stakeholders trying to help inform the way the yep. government works. And I think what we haven't done as well 
yeah. is empower those community voices yeah. to speak up. So for our foundation, that's looked like for the last 15 years, we do reproductive health and justice as well. Um, shifting the way we've taken our monies and invested in large, predominantly white-led organizations and start to invest over many years in building the grassroots and BIPOC-led capacity of the field so that now there's an active sort of stronger movement on which to build and to lift up those voices to inform the way policies are being made. I think the same kind of movement is happening in the early childhood and childcare field. And so we've been shifting over the last five years or so to investing in more grassroots organizing yeah. and movement building to collaborate and partner with, with the advocacy groups and then yeah. with government so that yeah. we can do a better and better job of making sure that that the voices of those who are closest and the most proximate mm. to the issues that we're trying to solve are informing the way those decisions yeah. are getting made. And so I totally understand this. And yet for me, and hopefully my the audience has the same feeling, is like it's extremely murky. Like, yes. like how do you... It, it like, is murky. Like how do you... Like, you know, like I believe uh, there is a great want and need for a lot of people today, even in the city of Chicago. Uh, I talk to um, peers, male and female, all the time about the wanting and the need to wanting to express support, voice our opinion, influence, be change makers for public good, except we don't know where to go. We don't know what to do, right? And so, like, I would love... <laughs> <laughs> and we cannot like we and and you know by the way i'm gonna put a few caveats in there i i love tech i like what i'm doing i don't necessarily am seeking a career in philanthropy that's not what i'm saying i wouldn't say i want to also use me yes. as a way to help others right i see that i i am for instance the person who's most upset with cps and like ever always all the time <laughs> yeah right well there's lots like, of reason for that <laughs> yeah yeah there's many reasons for that um it, specifically one of them is that I have to pay a, a ridiculous amount of money to for daycare right now because I have an eight months old and there's no public service. Well, you know, if the Build Back Better can't change it. I know, I'm supporting That's a huge that. thing. So, no one will pay more than 7% of their income in child you know, care. Fingers crossed. Fingers crossed. We'll in a long haul. Fingers crossed. But um, for instance, even now, tell me, like, if there's if there's a few activities that I and I don't know if you know this, so please correct me. But like, what can I do as an individual yeah. to contribute? Right. I guess I guess I would answer this. I'm going to take one step back and then I'm yeah. going to give you my thoughts. Irving used to talk about um, he would adapt an African story about mm -hmm. babies in the river, and I'm going to tell a very abbreviated version. Yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah. There's um, friends having a picnic by the side of a river, and they look up. There's a baby in the river. Someone mm -hmm. takes off his shoes, he runs in, he grabs the baby, he gets to the bank, hands it to a friend and looks up another baby. Runs back in, comes back again with the baby, and this goes on and on for a little bit. And finally, he, he says to the woman, you run into his, his friends, you go into the river and grab the babies, and he starts running upstream. And they said, where are you going? I'm going to find out who's putting the babies in the river so I can stop them, right? And he would stop the story there to make a point about that's why we fund advocacy and systems and policy work, because we want to fundamentally change what's been going on. 
I like to then say, but there's so many places along the riverbank for you to enter the river, right? You could be all the way down at the bottom because there's an enormous need to help just immediately take those kids out of the river. And that looks like volunteering at your local shelter, dropping off food at the food pantry, um, signing up for your local community, you know, network group so that you can bring your voice to the issue. A little bit higher up on the stream, it might look like, oh, I'm going to um, invest in the workforce and training the workforce because that builds capacity for people to serve the children that need to be served. Mm -hmm. And then a little higher up might look like something else. And everybody is going to enter where they are most comfortable in their own bodies and in their own time. But what now we need to know is who's below us and who's above us and how is what I'm doing supporting and, effect and affecting those people as well. Mm -hmm. Because if all of us along the riverbank are working together, right. then maybe we can solve the problems, right? Mm -hmm. And I think what's been even more challenging and appropriately so is, you know, we really have systems of oppression that are baked into our systems. And we need to dismantle those and rebuild those. And those are really, really challenging. And that's why we need to empower our the voices of people like you, you know, in your community of grassroots organizers, because it's only by bringing those voices to the forefront that we'll actually be able to start to um, have the, the power to push back and start to make those kinds of changes, right? We have to be able to like hold people accountable. So for someone like you, I feel like there's a lot of ways you could, I mean, go get involved in your local school council or, I mean, if people are busy, but that's one way to do it or just show up um, to parent meetings and, and give your voice and say what, what, and write a letter to your local legislator. Or, you know, there's like a million ways that people can actually get involved that works, you know, like, you know, voting is a big issue right now for, for me and my family, like where people are not getting access to it. We did a lot of postcard writing and different kinds of things during the last election. We went out and volunteered. And, you know, I think that there's just a lot of ways that somebody can choose to get involved that works for their own lives, but also for the whole system. But understanding where you are in that whole system of people working on those issues, I think, mm -hmm. is is really important and, um, and is what makes our democracy a democracy. Yeah. And that's at risk now, too. So, you know, it's more important today that we use our voices, I feel. Yeah. I love that. That's that's really nice. Like I, I do feel like there's a lot of work uh, that could happen at the local level, and I still, for some reason, um, feel like access to systemic change is um, is is not there for individuals. I want to say I don't know. It's, it feels like it's like a reserved place for people that have organizations or feed a specific background or whatever that is or know the system better right like whatever that is put in the fill in the blank is like systemic change is only accessible to x right and so if we had to go upstream in our activism how will we go about that or you know i mean i think the most important thing is making sure that we're getting people elected into office who hold our values and care about what we care about because they're ultimately the people who are going to vote on the legislation. So, like, mm -hmm. we don't always remember that, that mm -hmm. one of the things that's most important is mm -hmm. voting and, and putting forward candidates who who will represent you and what you care about. Speaking and of, if, we have an election. 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we have a lot going on. So I not can't be political as a foundation yeah. person. I'm not allowed to be political in that way. But I do think as an individual, I think one of the first things is get people elected and start getting them into the elected positions, whether that's your local school council or something else mm. early and help them build their, nice. um, their voice in their careers. So I think that's really important. I think that had a lot to do with where we, you know, some of the more progressive voices that we're seeing, yeah. you know, come forward. And definitely, so that's, definitely. so that's one thing. <laughs> Definitely having more mothers in politics would help. I agree. I agree. We always joke in early childhood that the people who've been the most progressive are either those who are just have young children themselves yeah. and or have become a grandparent. Yeah. And all of a sudden they're reminded, oh my gosh, those kids really learn so much so early, way before six years of age when they go to school what should we be doing about it? And so we've seen over the years when the governor or somebody like that gets in and all of a sudden they're exposed to that again, they're, oh, maybe they're a little more open to some of these kinds of changes, you know? Yeah. Um, it's also why on reproductive justice, it's important to have women in office, right? Because I think yeah. people speak from what they experience and what yeah. they know. And um, so I guess I'd start there. That's not the only thing that we can do. I also think we should just use our voice, show up at public meetings, participate in public comments. I think when there was some issues with the way the early care and education stuff came down in the city of Chicago, and I co-chair our state's early learning council mm. for the governor, and this is not the city, so this is just the state, but even in our, our public meetings, we had a lot of people showing up and, and bearing witness and using their voice to put pressure on elected officials to do something different. And that helps, right? It helps. And, okay. you know, the state's now uh, creating a whole network of community and regional early learning councils because they want to find a way yeah. to lift up community voice to inform the way things work. I well, even recently, the recent announcement about the Board of Education being an elected board in many, in, ever, I think, in the history of Chicago. I think that's right, the first time. Mm -hmm. it's crazy but it's awesome can't so now wait. we have to put people forward right can't who wait. we want to elect right so yes. i think that that's the challenge because those who tend to step forward are those who are well financed and well resourced and yeah. not always the ones that represent the voices of the mm -hmm. community and i think that that's why um it's important to you know shift the way philanthropy invests right give more money more unrestricted money. You know, we've always been sort of leaned into what I would call trust-based philanthropy. It's now a term that's in the field, right? And so we do a lot of relationship-based grant making and um, general operating support. And um, I think more and more philanthropies are trying to do that and to give the power of the resources and how they get used back to the community to do mm -hmm. more with. And I know we're continuing to push ourselves to think about how that works in our philanthropy in a deeper way love it yeah, yeah. which um i think takes me to um a closing question here for you and then we'll do our little outro but thoughts on being a woman leading a foundation well i have lots of thoughts on being a white, <laughs> a white woman leading a foundation yeah. trying to be an anti-racist organization I think there are a lot of women in philanthropy, yes. not as many as men in, in leadership roles, but more. 
So I'm very grateful for the role models that I've had in my career. I've now been here for 25 years, and I'll start with Irving Harris, who was my mentor for eight years before he passed away, but many other women who have been strong leaders, both in the not-for-profit and the philanthropy sectors, Mm -hmm. who I have had the good fortune to get to know and to learn from and to observe. And so I feel like I'm just very grateful for for their guidance and their leadership and their help, both in, in showing where to lean in and also where to step back. And, um, you know, I'm continuously working on this. So I want to just say I'm by no means, you know, I'm an evolving human and we yes. all are. And I will continue yes. to evolve and continue to push my thinking and my learning and to try to go deeper and be, you know, as reflective as possible. I think the last two years has been very challenging to be a leader of any organization, let alone um, because we had to pivot so quickly under COVID to move, change the whole way we work and uh, holding the team through all of that. And then we've had a racial reckoning, which was long overdue. And we have a team that is primarily BIPOC uh, women and men and very talented group of individuals also a little bit younger on the age spectrum and so you know everybody has experienced the last two years personally and professionally differently Mm. depending on their context and their histories and um so for us as a team it's been hard to really work at building and keeping trust we've also brought on new people during covid so it's this these are challenges and challenging times and so i find myself having to learn all you know whole new ways of being Mm. and ways of holding and I have to admit I've not always succeeded my goal is to learn when we don't do right and to create the space in the room for our team Mm. to thrive in a safe environment yeah and I don't think we're there yet to be honest you know this is evolving work Mm-hmm. Um, but I think what we do share is a deep mission and vision for what we want to see happen for mm-hmm. children and families. And that keeps us all sort of moving together mm-hmm. as a unit. So I think these are challenging times to be a leader, to know what, how to do this work, even making the simplest of decisions of, do we go back or do we not go back? How do we hold everybody's safety? And, yeah. um, to how do we hold everybody as humans yeah. and, and their whole humanity? Yeah. And how do I show up in that space? And how do we think about power? And how do we think about accountability? And mm-hmm. these are questions we're just, you know, continuously grappling with. And, um, you know, how do we pivot and continue to push ourselves to go deeper, not just rest on our laurels of saying, well, we've been doing racial equity work for a number of years, which we have. But can we do more and deeper and differently? And the answer is yes. Mm-hmm. And what does that look like? And, you know, as I said, I was, I've been the co-chair of the Early Learning Council. That's been a privilege and an honor. But how do we create pathways so that we have new leadership and more diverse leadership who steps up into roles of authority and responsibility? Absolutely. Absolutely. So these are just, learn. we're deeply learning. Yeah. So we're, and I look forward to, you know, anybody who has ideas, you know, we try to uh, do that. And, um, you know, but it is hard work. It is yeah. definitely challenging hard work. Um. What I also heard, you know, I, I heard so many beautiful things, including like you're, you said deeply learning, which is to me is so much better than just learning, right? It's like, because it then it, 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 it brought things out like holding, which is 
um, something that I learned in, in, in coaching, but I hope it means the same, which means like holding space for anything, like anyone. And therefore, what I also heard from that is that you have a team that has expressed emotions, frustrations, so maybe sometimes anger, happiness, and everything in between with you and the foundation, which that's awesome. Like, that's awesome that, you know, your team is bringing that out to you and you're deeply learning how to hold, hold, hold on to them, hold space for them and listen and learn and do something, you know, with their help about what's happening. Yes. All, all of the above. Yeah. And we have yet to really create the kind of courageous spaces. Mm. We're working on that. You know, mm -hmm. where people really can, we're getting there, but it's hard. It's hard for, for me. It's hard for them. And, but we're, what we are doing is committed to that process, right? Mm -hmm. So, um, and doing that work together. And that will hopefully be a beautiful thing, right? It's how can we find joy in this kind of liberatory work, right? And how does mm -hmm. that, um, and it isn't always easy. In fact, it's, relative never really that easy you know this is it shouldn't be easy because this is hard challenging work but um i think we're all committed to getting there and to figuring out how we work together to repair and and build something that you know will continue to allow us to do this work in meaningful ways so yeah well i hope they hear this and they hear your um your vulnerability in this space and also like they step up because um their words are needed like you said we want to we want to hear everybody speak we want to make sure that people are advocating for their right rights and their representations and their groups and um i'm so happy that you've come on the podcast <laughs> thank you so much thank for you all i really appreciate it doing. i appreciate it i i've enjoyed our conversation i have a lot to take away and think about so thank you for that and um i look forward to knowing you more over the years and watching your work thank you i hope so too this has been an honor great i hope you come back soon and until then nice to see you Marina. Nice thank see you, you. Right, bye bye Woo! there you have it I hope you liked this episode and please don't forget to share, like, comment on the podcast link. Tell all your networks and friends and family about it. Submit a recommendation for guests at Subscribe on your favorite podcast app. Donate by clicking on the anchor link and help me continue to make great episodes. You can find all this information on www.embossed.io. See you next time. Oh, that was good.